Genesis chapter 33. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. He put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you, he asked. Jacob answered, They are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all, Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau asked, What do you mean by all these droves I met? To find favor in your eyes, my lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God, now that you have received me favorably. Please, accept the present that was brought to you. For God has been gracious to me, and I have all that I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Then Esau said, Let us be on our way. I'll accompany you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are tender, and that I must care for the ewes and cows that are nursing their young. If they are driven hard just one day, all the animals will die. So let my Lord go on ahead of his servant while I move along slowly at the pace of the droves before me and that of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. Esau said, Then let me leave some of my men with you. But why do that? Jacob asked. Just let me find favor in the eyes of my Lord. So that day Esau started on his way back to Seir. Jacob, however, went to Sukkot, where he built a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. That is why the place is called Sukkot. After Jacob came from Padan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan, and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver, he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of the ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohai Israel. This is God's word. Uh, good evening, let me add my welcome. My name is Matt Fuller, if we've not met. We went on the weekend. Uh, we had a great time. We had a great time. Such, such lo- so lovely to spend uh, time in one another's company. I made the next one. They're lovely. Let me uh, lead us in prayer as we begin. Father, we'd love to sing uh, as we've sung these songs we've sung this evening. We'd love to sing them more clearly from our hearts. You know, the pride that lurks within us. That is perhaps isn't that astounded that we're Christians because we think we're very good at maintaining ourselves in the Christian faith or deserve to be accepted by you. Would you once again this evening give us a realistic assessment of ourselves, the sin that lurks within us, and therefore the goodness of your grace that keeps us, sustains us, that will take us home if we're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you teach us again of your grace this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now there's something particularly exciting, isn't there, about the sort of dramatic conversion stories 
you know, the, the murderer who turns around and then becomes a missionary and uh, makes tea for old ladies. You know, we like the sort of dramatic uh, turnarounds, I mean, because they're dramatic. I think that's probably why we like them. The sort of Jean Valjeans who encounters grace personified and uh, then changes his life around and becomes a very respectable mayor and a businessman, etc. But, of course, he's a bit of a mixed bag because even when you meet the living God, when you trust in Jesus Christ, when you become a Christian, there's change. It's wonderful, but but not perfect overnight. And there's a sense we're all a bit of a mixed bag going forward. You know, we have good days, we have bad days. As God progressively works within us, only when we get to glory will the sin be removed and will we be perfect. We're a mixed bag until then, no matter how dramatic the experience. And that's been true of that. We'll see that's very much true of Jacob. If you're joining us, we've been looking at his life well, since January. Um, uh, chapters 25 to 35 of the book of Genesis. And over, largely we've seen he's a liar, he's a deceiver, he'll cheat his dad, he cheated his brother, he's a cad, he cheats his father-in-law, he's got two wives, he's not great with them. Uh, he's a bit of a mess. He's a cad, a bounder, and other such traditional words. Um, but we saw last week, last time he had, uh, in chapter 32, this extraordinary encounter with God. He wrestled with God. And in a sense, although God brought him, wounded him, brought him to a point of desperation, we're told that Jacob overcame in that he clung to God and, as Hosea would interpret it, he begged for grace from the living God. There's this dramatic encounter in chapter 32 and God gives him a new name. No longer are you going to be called Jacob, deceiver. Now I give you a new name, Israel, one who has struggled with God. There's a dramatic encounter in uh, chapter 32. So there's a sense in which, fairly naturally, you expect, okay, Jacob, his life has changed. Dramatic encounter with the living God. And you slightly think that as he enters chapter 33, it's going to be a moment of, well, he pulls off, he pulls off his, whatever he's wearing, his tunic, and underneath there's his Superman badge because he's changed. You slightly expect him to enter this chapter gleaming and new and dramatically different. It doesn't quite work like that, sadly. He's a mixed bag. Bizarrely, he still gets called Jacob. Why bizarre? Glad you asked. Because other characters in Genesis so far, if you get given a new name, that's it. So when God meets Abraham and says, I give you a new name, Abraham, that's it. From that point on in the text, he's only known as Abraham. There's no reference to his old name. When Sarai is given a new name, Sarah, that's it. From that point onward, she's just Sarah. No reference to what they were before. Jacob, I give you a new name, Israel. Chapter 33, verse 1, Jacob looked up. Why are you using his old name? Because this man is both Jacob and Israel. He has good moments. Israel, yeah, met with God, begged for grace, got it right. But he's still Jacob, deceiver, gets it very wrong. And so as we look at this, I mean, I don't think it's very far from us. So you could, it's very easy to have dramatic experiences, you could say, in the Christian life. Have tearfully dramatic experiences on some conference or rally 
or a, a spiritual high on serving on a Christian camp or, or on a Sunday. I've really met with God, but then, oh well. Back to being Jacob again. We ebb and fr- we're all a mixed bag, just like Jacob. So we're going to look at it like this. He has good moments and bad moments. So let's call him Israel when he does well. Is Three things we're going to look at. Israel showed repentance to Esau. Great. Esau showed God's grace to Jacob. Good. Oh, Jacob showed fickleness to God. Uh-uh. But we won't end there, so fear not. Okay, let's work through them then. First then, Israel is in good form. Israel showed repentance to Esau. Chapter 33, verse 1. Here we see the best of the man. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. What does that mean? They got swords, they got party hats. What's going on? Because 20 years earlier, Jacob had deceived his brother Esau, cheated him out of enormous wealth, blessing, success, prosperity. And Esau said, I'm going to kill him. And so Jacob ran away. And this is 20 years later. And this is the first time he sees the man who has said, I'm going to kill him. So he's a little bit nervous. And Esau's coming with 400 men. That's a little bit ominous. Um, so, but, but what goes on? So he divides the children up, puts them in order. But verse 3, he himself went on ahead. Good. Not as fearful as back in chapter 32 where he sent everyone ahead of him and he brought up the rear. Now he's in the front. That's good. It's encouraging. What does he do? Well, he bows down seven times to Esau, verse 3, to the ground. Well, that's, that's what you do to your king. That's what the lesser man would do to his um, ruler in the ancient world, to bow down seven times to the ground. That's real humility here being shown. And he insists, look, in the previous chapter, he sent 550 animals to Esau. He says, I want you to take all these animals. In the ancient world, animals are cash. Your sheep and your cattle are your stocks and your shares. It's cash. It's money. Now, if you've been here, just, just think back. Back in chapter 27, when Esau was, sorry, when Jacob cheated Esau, What was the blessing? The blessing had two elements to it. You, Jacob, will rule your brother Esau. You will be prosperous wildly, and you'll have to work really hard to get any money. And what's Jacob doing here? He's saying to Esau, I'll serve you, my master, and I'll give you my wealth. Jacob is saying, you know that blessing I stole from you? I give it back. I want you to have it back. This is very real repentance that is being shown. If you're in any doubt, I mean, it's annoying, it doesn't come out very clearly, but it's clearest of all in the text is verse 11, which literally reads, please accept the blessing from me. Please accept my blessing, the very thing that he'd stolen from his brother. Genuine repentance being shown here by Jacob. Good. Now, systematically, I guess if you took the whole Bible, you'd have to say, um, what does the Bible say about repentance? Repentance is an inward work produced by the Lord. It's always accompanied by faith. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. 
never really have one without the other if it's genuine. Repentance is an inward work which is demonstrated outwardly by confession and restitution. Those are the real marks that you're repentant. You confess your sin, you make restitution. You see, you see that uh, in a number of places in the scriptures. Zacchaeus, the unscrupulous tax collector, Luke 19, meets Jesus and uh, starts to follow Jesus and says, I, I want to give back fourfold everything I've cheated people out of. That's a lot of money, Zacchaeus, I know. But that's how it is. I want to make restitution because I am genuinely repentant. This afternoon, slightly unfortunate incident, children's, uh, children's birthday party, eight-year-old birthday party. Our eight-year-old was there. Uh, um, it went badly wrong at the end. No one quite knows what happens, but there were punches thrown. Uh, not so clever. Okay, separation, son. Um, are you sorry for what you did? Yes, I'm very sorry. Okay, you, you then you need to go and knock on their door and tell them they're sorry. No. No. Well, I don't think you're sorry. I am. Well, then there needs to be confession. I am. I've done wrong. Yes. And restitution. Knock on the door. Bag of frozen peas, maybe, will be useful at this moment in time. Resti- well, there's no real sorrow. There's no real repentance uh, at that point. Genuine repentance will always be accompanied by confession of sin and by restitution. Hope we get that. The man who steals money and says, I'm really sorry I stole a hundred pounds from you. Okay, can I have it back? No. Not that sorry, are you? Not that sorry. Genuine repentance here because it comes along with restitution. Now, what has happened to uh, Jacob? 20 years earlier, he'd do anything, deceive, cheat, lie, steal, to grab hold of the blessing. How can he now just say, Esau, have it? Have it. It's because he's met God. And that has changed him. So look at the contrast between how they speak of their wealth, the two brothers. So Jacob says, verse 5, God has been gracious to me. Who are these with you? These are the children that God has graciously given your servants. God has been gracious to me. How does Esau describe his wealth? Verse 9, I've got plenty. It's very different. God has been gracious. I've got plenty. Three times Jacob mentions that God has given him things. So verse 5, God has given me children. Verse 10, God has given me life. Verse 11, God has given me prosperity. Esau, how many times has he mentioned God? That's three nil right there. Because Esau, excuse me, Jacob knows God has given him everything he has. Esau says, you know what, I didn't get the blessing, but who cares? I've done all right for myself, you know. I've done quite well. How can Jacob say, the very thing that I spent my whole life plotting and planning to steal from you, and I just give it back. Because now he knows that God provides for him. Jacob has met the living God, and he has changed. He's now Israel. Because he trusts that God provides, he can give away money, he can make restitution, he can be genuinely repentant before others. 
Now, there is something in that for you and for me. If you know that your sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ and you're accepted, God is your Father and you you trust him that he will provide for you, you can make repentance before others. Yes, you may have to lose face. There may be financial restitution or, I don't know how you classify it, emotional restitution. Are you sorry? Yes, I'm really sorry. Did you do wrong? Yes, I did wrong. You know, no one likes to do that. But if you've met with the living God, you know you're forgiven, you know that the Father provides for you, you can do that. Israel showed repentance to Esau. He did it because he met with God. There's the first thing. Second thing to look at, Esau showed God's grace to Jacob. No need to be a bit careful about this. Esau showed God's grace to Jacob. I don't think the text is suggesting at all for one moment that Esau is a believer. And yet, in two ways, he reveals grace to Jacob. Let me try and show those two. The first thing, he just simply, well, let me put it this way, he reveals it, uh, first of all, and then he patterns it. So he reveals it. Context. If you were here last time, or you can just look across, chapter 32, verse 11, Jacob is desperate and prays, chapter 32, verse 11, save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau. I'm afraid he'll attack me and also the mothers with their children. Save me, I pray. What happens? We saved. Now the writer, we slightly skip through it, but the writer builds up the tension. Save me, I pray. I'm in desperate condition. So you, the, the way the writer does it, 33 verse 1, Jacob looks up. There's Esau coming, you know, with his 400 men. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? He bows down. And what does Esau do? Verse 4, look at the verbs. Just look at the verbs. Esau ran to meet Jacob, embraced him, threw his arms around him, kissed him. That's amazing. That's amazing. All of Jacob's planning and how am I going to relate to Esau and what are we going to do? God has changed Esau. God has changed the heart of Esau towards Jacob. What's well, a, a very simple way of putting it. God has answered Jacob's prayer. That's taken place. The last time we heard words from Esau were, I'm going to kill you, Jacob. And now he says, come on, come on, give me the hug, give me the hug. Jacob limps, Esau runs to him, embraces him, kisses him. In one sense, you just got a classic biblical example here of the truth of Proverbs 21 verse 1. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a stream wherever he pleases. The heart of Esau was in the hands of the Lord. And he graciously directed Esau's heart to embrace Jacob. Who are you scared of? Nervous of? Apprehensive of? I know it is. A relative? A boss? A friend you've fallen out with? Pray. Pray. The heart of your, fill in the blank, boss, mother-in-law, whatever it may be, is in the hand of the Lord. Pray. Doesn't it make you want to pray? Pray for them. 
No, of course, plot and plan as well. No, just, no, 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 let me come back. Of course, do what you practically can, but pray. Uh, years ago when I was a, a school teacher, in fact, uh, when I was doing my PGC, uh, therefore teacher training as uh, a slightly naive uh, callow youth, and, uh, the school I was taught in was described as lively. Uh, its pass rate was 15% at GCSE. Uh, which slightly tells its own tale, CCTV in all the corridors, um, classrooms and the desks had panic buttons. Uh, now, uh, one particular class as a student teacher, uh, I had a shocker with, 9C. <laughs> and it was, you know, you, 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 know, who, you know, you wake up on a, whatever it was on a Monday, oh no, you know, it's whatever it is, 6 o'clock in the morning, thinking, I've got 9C, I've got 9C at 3pm this afternoon, I've got 9C, they were just terrible riotous class, they were—they they had no respect, they just called me Dennis instead of Sir, they—they um, they thought I looked like Dennis Bergkamp, who was a footballer at the time, they just said, I'd walk in, all right Dennis, um, and were very rude, yes, it was, I, I had more hair, so did he, um, and uh, you know, I, um, there was the occasion when Michael uh, I asked to do something, you wouldn't do it. Michael, you need to get on with it. I can't remember, I can't remember the details of the conversation. What I do remember quite vividly is this fairly large, you know, whatever he was, 14, 15 year old, coming out of his seat, striding over and taking a swing at me. At that moment, where's the button? Where's the button? Um, terrible, terrible. I remember meeting an older friend, 10 years older than me, and saying, Tim, I, I, this is, it's all right. It's going okay, but 9C are out of control. They run the room, and it's... Have you prayed for them? Um, I've tried all sorts of strategies. Have you prayed for them? Oh, no. Give that a go. Okay. And don't mishear me. Of course, in this complicated class... I tried incredibly hard to plan uh, good lessons that were going to work. I took lots of advice from other teachers about how to control them, and particularly Michael, um, what you do with them. But prayed, and, and actually, a few weeks later, they were putty in the hand. It's amazing. I vividly remember the moment when Michael came up to me after one lesson and said, Sometimes, sir, I think you're all right. And I would vividly remember going and finding a little corner on my own and praying, Lord, yes! You know, pathetic, isn't it? A 15-year-old boy thinks I'm all right. Um, but the heart of Michael was in the hand of the Lord. And he directs it as a water course. He wasn't a believer. That's what Proverbs is saying. This is what we've got in this text here. He's not a believer. Doesn't make you want to pray, pray for people when they're when, they're, uh, when you're scared of them or whatever it may be. So first of all, excuse me, Esau reveals God's grace. Second thing, he patterns it. He patterns it as well. Look down at verse ten. Let's see if I can explain what I mean. Jacob says, "If I've found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me." This is a strange sentence. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God. What are you talking about? Esau, I don't think, is meant to be a believer. What does he mean? 
when I look at your face, I see the face of God. Jacob's point here, when he's tying them together, back in chapter 32, he saw God face to face. He sees Jacob here and, see, and says, it's like seeing your face, it's like seeing God's face. What have they got in common? Jacob was petrified, terrified, we're told in the last chapter, of meeting with Esau. But Esau meets him with grace, with compassion, throws his arms around him and says, brother, it's wonderful to see you again. And that's the link. Because Jacob's saying, when I come before the Lord, I'm scared. He's the living God. But I've met him and he's treated me with compassion and grace. And Esau, I was terrified of you, but the way you've run out and embraced me and thrown your arms around my my neck and kissed me, Godly, that's how God's treated me. Certainly, of course, that's how Jesus took it, or took this text, I take it. Because when Jesus tells in Luke 15 the story of the prodigal son who, you know, um, takes his father's money, wanders off, squanders all his money, when he eventually comes back, Jesus tells us that the father in this story, well, Luke 15, verse 20, while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. What did he do? He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Precisely the same as what happens here. That's what we're meant to look at this, how Esau runs and embraces Jacob. And Jacob says, you know what? That's just a bit of how God has treated me. I know you don't understand it, but just in this encounter, that's how God treats me when I don't deserve it. You've patterned God's grace to me. Isn't that fabulous? So Israel, he does well. He shows repentance to Esau. Wonderfully, Esau shows God's grace to Jacob. He reveals how God has been kind. He patterns it for him. But thirdly, oh, Jacob. Jacob showed fickleness to God. He's not all gleaming anew. And just a couple of things highlight that. Let me just show them to you. Uh, the two things which are, I, I think the text was meant to point out to us that all is not quite well. The first, why do you deceive Esau? Why do you do that? So you get this little dialogue. Uh, verse 12, hey, let's be on our way. I'll accompany you. Uh, uh, says Jacob, um, not so sure. The, the animals are really tired. Verse 13. So verse 14, why don't you go on ahead? And we'll catch you up in a little bit. Esau, verse 15. Okay, fine. Why don't I leave some of my men with you and they can accompany you? Why do that? No need for that. Says Jacob, still in verse 15. You go on ahead to Seir and I'll catch you up. And he never does. Oh, Jacob. You know that the heart of Esau is in the hand of the Lord. And that the Lord will protect you. Why do you deceive? Why do you go back to being a deceiver again? See, at this moment, if he was, if I could put it this way, Israel, Israel would have spoken the truth in love to his brother and said, hey, look, it's great to see you, but let's not get too close because, you know, we can rub one another up the wrong way. Let's get the kids together at Christmas and in the summer holidays, but otherwise let's just create a little bit of space for ourselves and go our own way. And he's spoken the truth in love, but he's not. He's Jacob here. So he deceives, tells a lie, because he's just still a little bit afraid 
of what his brother might do. Old habits, they're hard to break. He still fears the face of Esau. Why do you deceive Esau? And then the second little thing, this is a bit more subtle. Let me explain it to you. Jacob, why, do you go to Bethel? why don't you go to Bethel? So what we're told happens, verse 18, Jacob comes from exile in Padanaram, enters the promised land, and goes to Shechem in Canaan. Well, what's wrong with that? He's gone back to the promised land. Apart from... In chapter 28, verse 21, after, uh, after Jacob has had this, the extraordinary vision of God's staircase going up to heaven and angels, angels coming back and down and on the staircase, Jacob said to the Lord back in chapter 28, verse 21, Lord, if you watch over me and bring me, bring me back to the promised land, I will come back to Bethel and worship you. And God has launched over him and brought him back to the promised land and Jacob doesn't go to Bethel, he goes to Shechem. And a little later on, we'll see in chapter 35, verse 1, God says, uh, Jacob, Bethel, you said Bethel, come to Bethel. That's what you promised. And one says, what's wrong with that? Jacob settles for nearly obedience or a sort of half-hearted discipleship. What's wrong with that? How bad can that be? I mean, goodness, I mean, verse 20 of this chapter, he does at the end set up an altar and call it El Elohe Israel, which means mighty is the God of Israel. I mean, Jacob praises God. That's good. I mean, I'm not quite doing what I promised the Lord I would do and I should do, but I am praising him. So that's, I mean, I'm nearly doing what I ought to do. That's good enough, isn't it? Now, that's quite easy to slip into. Hey, look, I'm, I'm here on a Sunday, and I praise the Lord. I mean, okay, I'm sleeping with my girlfriend, but, you know, I do serve coffee, so it's all right, isn't it? I'm mostly obeying. Mostly obedience is, is good enough, isn't it? No. No, it's not what the Lord is after. Hey, look, I, I read my Bibles most morning and pray. Look, I never, I'm, you know, I never bother to help anyone else in the Christian life. Never really pray for anyone else. Never to, you know, I come to church every now and again. If, if, it, if the mood takes me, I can't be bothered to serve anyone else. But I'm doing all right, aren't I? I'm mostly obeying what Jesus says. No. God isn't interested in half-hearted obedience. He wants all of us. So we'll see next week one of the most miserable chapters in the whole Bible. Jacob was meant to go to Bethel. He goes to Shechem. And his only daughter is raped by the men of Shechem. And his sons go on a killing spree by way of revenge. Why did you go to Shechem? Half-hearted obedience never ends well, Jacob. The Lord says, obey me for my honor, for your good. It's a very miserable story, entirely avoidable if he'd done what he was meant to do. You see what the problem is there? The Lord wants all of your obedience. 
please don't ever say, look, I'm, you know, I'm mostly obeying. That's all right, isn't it? I've sort of, okay, this area I know I need to sort out at some point, but over here is going quite well. So on balance, if you put it in some kitchen scales, there's more obedience than disobedience. So no, obey. Half-hearted obedience is disobedience. Why do you do that, Why do you do that, Jacob? So Jacob shows fickleness to the Lord. He's got a new name, Jacob, Israel, but his old nature, it just won't die. And so in that sense, well, he's much like a Christian. You become a Christian, God places his spirit within you. You have your old sinful nature and, the work, and you have the Holy Spirit working both within you. And so all of us here are a bit of a Israel, Jacob mix. We're all that. We're a mixed bag. Don't we know it, if we're honest? So don't look at Jacob here and dismiss him as awful. You should, we want to be able to look at Jacob and recognize him as, as quite familiar in his half-heartedness and the fact he's a mixed bag. But please don't look at him as such and say, well, that's just life, isn't it? And that's just the Christian life. Fight it. Fight your half-heartedness. Fight your fear and deception. How do you do that? You do it by knowing how wonderful the acceptance you have in Jesus Christ is. You know it by knowing that God is a Father who, if you're a Christian trusting in Christ, runs out to you, embraces you, kisses you, welcomes you back in, and says, know how much I love you, then obey me. Because that is a transforming grace. Uh, many years ago, uh, I remember as a teenager, a 17-year-old, uh, I was learning how to drive, my dad was teaching me. And uh, as a 17-year-old, one night I went out. Now I told my parents I was going to the cinema with Stuart, who was a nice friend who they approved of. Actually, I was going out, pre-Christian days, I was going out drinking with Peter who they desperately disapproved of. Peter was 10 years older than me, hard-drinking ex-soldier, was always in trouble. And so off I went. And, you know, it was nothing too awful. I wasn't, you know, I don't think, I can't remember being drunk or anything like that, or wildly so. But I do remember getting back, whatever it was, half 11, and uh, my dad was early to bed, early to rise sort of man. You know, always get up at 6, go to bed at 10. Half 11, there was my dad sat on his own in an armchair. Oh, Hi, surprise! How come you're still up? You lied to me. Uh, you know, seventeen-year-old calculations. You know, bluff, truth to What do I do this? But you lied to me. Stuart had rung up to talk to me that night at home. You lied to me, and he went to bed. You lied to me. That's all he said. Next morning, Saturday morning, we went to go for a driving lesson. We'd said we'd go for a driving lesson at 10 o'clock. I came downstairs nervously, you know, a little after 10. I think still in pajamas. He said, come on, you were going to be late. Uh, what, what do you mean? For the driving lesson. Oh, we're still going. Yes? You're not angry with me. Angry? I am furious. Look at the garden. 
And clearly he'd been out for a few hours and chopped down half the trees in the garden. It's a massive pile of wood ready for a bonfire. He had clearly exercised his anger and taken it out on the garden. Oh, I'm furious. Don't lie to me again. It's quite an unusual thing for my dad to do that. He's quite strict in his discipline. It's one of those things that, you know, just really lodged in my head. I don't think I ever lied to him again. I'd reason, I'd explain my, but I would never lie to him again. I saw how hurt he was. And something in that act of grace, that he didn't ground me, discipline me, which is kind of what I was expecting, something in that act of generosity really stuck in my head. I don't want to lie to a man who loves me this much. It was a transforming act of grace. And that's what we need to know in Jesus Christ. My father took out his anger on the garden. In a just world, in a world of perfect justice, it doesn't quite work that way. But God the Father, his anger fell on God the Son. So that I can be forgiven. Now that is a transforming act of grace. Wonderfully transforming. If you know that because of the death of Jesus Christ for you, you are forgiven. And the Father, when he thinks of you, if I can put it in these terms, opens his arms, runs towards you, embraces you, puts his arms around your neck, kisses you, and says, it is so good to see you. That is a transforming grace. If you see the face of God in Jesus Christ, you don't fear men and try to deceive if you see the love of God in Jesus Christ, you don't go for half-hearted obedience because you want to obey one who's that good to you. So recognize the Father embracing you, running to you, kissing you. And obey. Don't be a deceiver. Don't be half-hearted. Love him. Obey him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that in this mixed bag of Jacob, it's very easy to recognize ourselves. Would we not uh, do that and think, wow, that's just what everyone's like. Every Christian is a mixture of the good and the bad, the, the, the Israel and the Jacob. But would we fight it? Would we recognize the grace that you've not just patterned for us, but the grace you've bestowed upon us? in Jesus Christ. And knowing that, knowing your love and kindness to us, would we obey you wholeheartedly? Would we be willing to live lives without deception? Because we're transformed by your grace to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.